Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. We've been considering the various options for interpreting the creation account in Genesis chapter 1 especially. Last time we looked at two young earth theories, and today we'll survey three old earth perspectives, including the day-age theory, modified day-age theory, and a non-literal approach. Actually, if you count it differently, four different perspectives, because we're also going to talk about a relativity theory, which is kind of interesting. For each, Will Barlow will explain the basics and offer a gentle critique. Here now is episode 462, part four of our scripture and science class Reading Genesis 1, Part 2. Welcome back to Scripture and Science. I'm excited for another great session. And I've titled this one, Episode 4, A New Hope for Genesis 1. No, that that can't be right. Uh, I think Liam got into my slides here. My son's a big Star Wars fan. Apologize for that. Uh, Actually, session four is titled Reading Genesis 1, Part 2. So I want to start by reviewing a little bit of what we've seen so far. What we saw in in an earlier session is that Genesis was written to a group of ancient people coming out of slavery. Okay, they were coming out of slavery. They were dealing with idolatry. Uh, the types of questions that they would be asking of the text as the initial listeners, as the initial readers, would be different than the questions that we come with to the text from a modern perspective, with our scientific understanding and the way that we think about the world around us. Those are things that are really important for us to keep in mind as we move forward. Another thing that we've talked about is that there are many views of Genesis 1. In fact, we're going to talk about eight views in this class, eight different ways of looking at Genesis 1. We've already looked at two of them, the two young earth views. Uh, We're going to look at some old earth views in this particular session. But before we get to those old earth views that we're going to talk about in this session, I wanted to go back to young earth creationism for just one moment because we're going to be using the same technique to analyze some of the old earth views that we're looking at in this session and the next session. And so I just wanted to provide a very brief visual representation of young earth creationism. Okay, so this is essentially the timeline of young earth creationism. You have the six days of creation here. You've got Noah's flood. You've got the life and ministry of Jesus. And you've got now. And it all fits on this nice little timeline. And this whole process just takes up the past 6,000 or so years. So that's young earth creationism in a nutshell. Now, just real, again, real briefly on young earth creationism before we get to the old earth views. Different young earth uh, proponents will have different views of where to shove the dinosaurs in. Some, some don't think that dinosaurs really ever existed, that they're just sort of fossils for us to discover and get fossil fuels and stuff like that. Some of them believe that dinosaurs lived in this time frame between creation and Noah's flood. So anyway, there's lots of views about all those things. And like I said, Answers in Genesis and the Institute for Creation Research are two. If you have questions about young earth creationism, those are the resources to go to to see what different people say about those things. Now we're going to get into some old earth views today. Since we're discussing all these different views of Genesis 1, I know many of you have a personal advocacy. You have a view of Genesis 1 that you like more than the rest, 
Maybe you only have one that you really know much about and that you've researched before, but whatever the case might be, uh, you may know a lot about a particular view on, on Genesis 1 or about multiple views on Genesis 1. I don't have the time to go into every little detail about all these different views. I also, as a general disclaimer, I'm not an expert on all these views. If I miss something that you think is important for your view, please don't take it personally. I'm doing uh, the best that I can to present just an overview, pros and cons of each different view, very briefly to give you a taste. And if you wanna know more, I'm happy to hand you off to some wonderful resources that I've come across uh, that can give you more information on those views. So please, if I miss an important piece of your, your view of Genesis 1, it's not, it's not personal. So today, in this session, we're going to be talking about these three views, the day-age and modified day-age, and two of the biggest modern proponents for those views are Hugh Ross and Gerald Schroeder. And again, Hugh Ross and Gerald Schroeder both are scientists. They come from a background, both of them have doctorates in physics and in astronomy. And then we have theistic evolution with Francis Collins, and he is the former head of the National Institutes of Health and is a big, big in the Human Genome Project. He was the leader of the Human Genome Project and a, a big proponent of evolution. So, and, and also has a doctorate degree. What we're going to see with these three views, these three particular old earth views, I think the way that I judge them in the context of the larger scheme of all these views is that these particular views are more motivated by the scientific evidence than they are by the direct evidence from the text. And I think we'll see that. Now, all these views, every single view from Young Earth Creationism to Walton's Temple view that we're going to get to in the next session, all of them are going to appeal on some level to the text of Genesis 1. Every single one of them is going to do some business with Genesis 1. And so the question remains... Is it a primary, is the text the primary thing that we're looking at to get to this view, or is the text a secondary consideration? And again, this is my opinion on these. If you hold one of these views and you don't believe that about these views, I understand, I get it. But my judgment of these views is that they're more motivated by the science and the scientific evidence than by the evidence from Genesis chapter 1, and I think we will see that. Getting into day-age, there are a couple different versions of day-age that we're going to talk about. There's what I would call the standard perspective on day-age, which people can have even sort of a very fuzzy version of this, where they just sort of wave their hands and say, well, each day could be a really long time. Um, so that's sort of one option. Uh, there is an earthbound perspective that Hugh Ross proposes that's very detailed, it's very nuanced, and he spent a great amount of time and effort developing that view. And so there's sort of a range of possibilities here. Here is a visual representation of what day-age looks like. So when you go through the text of Genesis 1, as you're reading through and you come across the first day and the second day and the third day, what a day-age person is going to say is each day of creation could be billions of years. So that's their explanation. They're going to go to Genesis 1 and they're going to say that each day of creation could be billions of years. That's how they fit the scientific evidence for an old earth, an earth that's about 13.7 billion years old, with Genesis 1 and the idea of there being six days. So what they're going to say is day one, certain things happened, light happened, you know, day two, blah, 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 and each day could take an extended period of time. 
If you look very on the very far right side of the, the visual representation here, you see the last little brackets, and that's, that's the last 6,000 years or so. That's the time from when Adam and Eve arrive on the scene at the very end of day six to now. So everything we saw on that young earth creationist chart fits into that tiny little portion on the very far right side of that visual representation. So these are different views. <laughs> these are wildly different views. Young earth creationism from an old earth view like day age here. Now, before we get into some of the details on uh, day age, I wanted to give a couple of pros from my perspective. Generally speaking, the sequence of events seems like it could be a plausible representation uh, from an ancient person's perspective of the scientific order of events. So generally speaking, if we go to Genesis 1, we read through the events in Genesis 1, it's close enough to what we believe in modern science. It's close enough that maybe we could say an, from an ancient per person's perspective, it could fit with the scientific order of events. That to me seems like a pro. That to me seems like a pro. Some of you may be like, ah, I don't know, I don't care about that. But to me, that's a pro. Um, another pro is that it is true that the word day can be more than one 24-hour period. We're going to look at some examples of that actually right now here in a moment. So it is true. This is not like some of you may be thinking, well, that's wacky to think that a day in Genesis 1 could be billions of years. That's crazy. <laughs> well, it is true that a day can mean more than one 24-hour period. And we're going to look at some biblical examples where the same word is used in a way that could mean more than one 24-hour period. So it could, it could make sense of, of things that way. Let's get into the Bible. If you, if you have your Bible with, with you, we can turn to Genesis chapter 2. And here is one example here in the immediate context of Genesis chapter 1, where the word day, Hebrew yom, can mean longer than one 24-hour period. In fact, must mean more than one 24-hour period. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, and again, I'm reading in the ESV in this class. These are the generations of the heavens and, and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Well, now this is referring back to the whole week of creation. So minimally, this is talking about a period of time that's longer than one day. And yet the word used is the same word that we see in Genesis chapter 1. So here is one example of a longer day. Uh, here's another one. If you want to turn with me to Genesis chapter 4, in verse 3, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Now, the ESV here translates the word yom, which was translated day in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis 2, 4. They translate time because it represents a longer period of time. In this case, we're talking about something long enough to provide for a harvest. So this is a pretty extended period of time. Uh, here's another example using sort of more of an idiomatic way of speaking in Genesis 44. So again, we're all, we're staying for all these things. We're staying in Genesis, which I have said was written by Moses <clears throat> using the spirit of God. Same person, same vocabulary, God's spirit working in him. And in Genesis 44, 32, it says, for your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father 
all my life, literally all my days or all the day. And so again, we have a longer period of time here being represented by this word yom, day. So day age proponents are correct that there is a legitimate biblical usage here for the word day that means longer than one 24 hour period of time. So what are the problems with that? And there are problems with it. The first one, the word day, when paired with a specific number, one, two, three, four, and especially the description of evening and morning, the evening and morning is the first day, evening and morning is the second day. That's not found in these other usages of the word day we just looked at, okay? The ones that use the phrase day to mean a longer period of time, we understand that idiomatically as well. Like, you know, someone says, well, back in my day, you could get a pound of taffy for a nickel, you know, right? <laughs> Thanks, Grandpa. Helps me now when gas is $4 a gallon, right? We understand this idiomatically, even in our language, in our time, that the word day can mean a longer period of time. But we don't generally run around saying, hey, the first day I did this, the second day I did that, the third day I did that, or even use terms like evening and morning to not mean a 24-hour period of time. We don't do that in English. There's really not a lot of good biblical evidence that they did it in Hebrew. And so I think this is a pretty strong biblical critique of this understanding that a day could be longer. Uh, in Genesis 1, that word yom could be longer than a 24-hour period of time. I think the other criticism, as, a, as someone who's interested in the science and matching things up, is that this view is, again, I think primarily motivated by the science. And the problem is the science doesn't line up perfectly. And I've got a chart here. It might be a little small. Hopefully everyone can see it well. But as you can see, the scientific order and Genesis 1, we're going to put them side by side. And in Genesis 1, we've got light on day 1. We've got heaven and space on day two. We've got the earth, the seas, the land and plants day three. Sun, moon and stars day four. Water life day five. And land life culminating with humans on day six. Now, if you take a day age perspective to this. Now, there's many ways of viewing this order, okay? This is talking about things being created in the order that they're talking about in Genesis 1. We're going to talk about other ways of viewing Genesis 1 that don't necessarily mean that all these things get created on these days, the way that they're listed out here, exactly like that. But just you know, using a day-age perspective here, looking at Genesis 1, we can see that light does line up perfectly. You have the Big Bang. You've got day one works great. Space, Big Bang as it expands and cools, day two, that works with day-age. Day three, you've got star formation and supernova. You've got the formation of planets, for formulation of water, the beginnings of atmosphere. You get amoeba to arrive. Okay, That lines up. The problem happens when you get to day four. Because in the creation account in Genesis 1, we see the sun, moon, and stars on day four. But there's no corresponding scientific event because it's already happened. It happened back on days two and three from a scientific perspective. So the science doesn't line up. Now, the water life works and land life works. If you believe in evolution and you want to work day age into that, that all works out fine with days five and six. The big problem is what do you do with day four? Day four is a big day for trying to understand the creation week just in general. We're going to get to more on day four a little bit later. So the point that I'm trying to make here is that 
If day age is motivated by the science, the textual side of it isn't, I don't think, particularly strong, especially hinging on that word day. The problem is it doesn't even do a perfect job of matching up the science with modern science. And I also think when we get to Walton's perspective, we're going to see that it's really important for us to consider if God would even want to line up Genesis 1 with our current scientific understanding sitting here in the year 2022 versus a current scientific understanding for 2222 or a current scientific understanding for 1000 AD. Why would he decide to pick our specific framework, our specific timeline, to want to present scientific information in order in Genesis 1? I think that's a philosophy question or a textual theological question we have to ask ourselves as well. We're going to get into that more in a later session. So how does Hugh Ross salvage this with his earthbound perspective? Well, this is from the Genesis question by Hugh Ross. And if you're interested in, the, I think, the most solid version of Day Age, I would recommend this book, The Genesis Question by Hugh Ross. On page 23, he says, The observer's vantage point is clearly stated. The service of the deep over the waters. Yet the vast majority of Genesis commentaries mistakenly proceed as if it were still high in the heavens somewhere in the starry realm above earth. So what Hugh Ross is saying is verse 1 is a heavenly perspective, and then starting at the rest of Genesis, you have an earthbound perspective. And a lot of other views take this perspective as well. Hugh Ross and Day Age is not the only one that take this perspective. A lot of other views think that this is true as well. So this, this may just be a good way of looking at the text. <laughs> this is what else he says on page 23. He says, The problem glares from the page at anyone slightly aware of how nature works. If the storyteller's viewpoint lies in the starry realm above, plants created on day three appears, appear before the sun even exists day four. So here he's trying to resolve with this earthbound perspective what we just talked about, about the problem between the order of day three and day four how day four fits into that whole scenario. So the earthbound perspective does improve the viewpoint of day age. It does make an improvement here because it significantly helps the issue dealing with the order of scientific information in comparison with Genesis 1. So in other words, Hugh Ross can say that the whole universe was created in verse 1 and then the rest of Genesis chapter 1 is just an unveiling from someone's earthbound perspective of what's going on from an, earth, from an earthbound perspective. So in other words, the sun exists that whole time, the earth exists that whole time, and things are just being revealed to an earthbound observer over time during that creation week. And that each of those steps would have taken a long time. It takes a long time for water life to develop, for land life to develop, and eventually we get to humans. The problem with this is it still does not resolve the issue surrounding the word day. And to me, that's the biggest criticism of day age that does not really get resolved with that perspective. So that is a little bit about day age and about Hugh Ross's way of trying to save day age with this earthbound perspective. I do want to talk a little bit about um, a couple more day age perspectives. We've got modified day age next. Modified day age says each day is a 24-hour period of time, but there are gaps between each day. 
So if you look at this, instead of day one being this whole period of time, day one is now this line. And then there's a big period of time. Then day two is a 24-hour period of time. Then there's another big period of time. Okay, so each day of creation is 24 hours, but the time between each day could be billions of years. Well, there's a couple problems with this. It still does not solve the scientific problem that the order is not perfect. So it does not solve the scientific problem. Here's the other wild one. Usually people that hold this view have rejected the gap theology, the gap theory, which just has one gap in Genesis 1. This view has like six gaps in Genesis 1. So you're going to reject a view that has one gap in Genesis 1 for a view that has six gaps or seven gaps. Okay, that's a little far-fetched. We might want to look at this some more and see if there is a, a better way of looking at this, a better way of understanding the text. Uh, there's no indication in the text anywhere in the rest of the Bible that there should be gaps between each day of creation. I think we will maybe find some good biblical evidence that there should be a gap at the beginning of the record, which is what gap theory says. We'll get to that in a future session. That's modified day age. Finally, I wanna talk about Gerald Schroeder's specific view on day age. I mentioned it in an earlier session. And I just think it's fascinating. As someone who's studied physics, Gerald Schroeder is an expert in physics, uh, MIT trained. So. What he believes is that the perspective in Genesis 1 is not earthbound. It's someone elsewhere with a cosmic perspective. And so as the universe, you know, the Big Bang starts, boom. And then as the universe expands, it cools and it slows down. Now, according to Einstein's theories, which we're going to get into a little bit in a future session, what that means is time itself changes you know, as the universe expands and cools and the expansion slows, uh, time itself, the clocks change how they keep time. And so day one is like a long time. Then day two is a shorter period of time. And day three is even shorter. And it gets shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter the further that the universe expands and time slowing down. This is what he has to say on his website. It says, starting with day one, the results are approximately. Now, he's trying to fit this with a traditional scientific Big Bang model. He's very, very open about this. Okay? He is motivated by a Big Bang model here. He's going to the text and saying, how can we fit 13.7 billion years into six days? And this is how he does it, using relativity. He says, starting with day one, the results are approximately... 7, 3.5, 1.8, 0.9, 0.5, billions of years compressed within each successive 24-hour biblical day. This is in close agreement with the NASA number of 13.7 billion years. So Gerald Schroeder, Dr. Schroeder, will tell you this, this brilliant Jewish physicist and uh, Old Testament scholar will tell you he's coming to Genesis trying to squeeze 13.7 billion years into six days. And he's going to do it using relativity. Okay. So again, you have to decide, does this sound like a good idea to you? I think it sounds fascinating. I don't think it holds a lot of water. Personally, that's my opinion. But you may love it. You may say, this is great. I love this. So anyway, this is another perspective. 
Now, how does Schroeder get around this whole problem with day? He does it in a very fascinating way. This is in the book, God According to God. I'm going to read a very long quote here. It's on three slides. It says, almost a millennium ago, the biblical commentator Nimonides realized that there must be a deeper meaning to the words evening and morning. He taught that the root or implied meaning of the Hebrew word usually translated evening, erev, is mixture, chaos. As the sun sets, he reasoned, vision becomes blurry, mixed. The implied meaning of the word translated morning, boker, is just the opposite. As the sun rises, vision becomes clear, orderly. Individual objects and colors can be discerned. The implied meaning of boker has within it the concept of order. The flow in simple terms is from p.m. to a.m. But the deeper meaning, the far more significant truth, is that six times over at the conclusion of each day of creation, there was remarkable flow contrary to what is normally observed in unguided nature. Normally, in all events, order degrades to disorder. That is why leaves decay on the ground and a cup of hot tea becomes cool as it remains on the table. But in this particular part of the universe, the opposite occurred, and the Torah emphasizes this six times over in the subtle language, and there was evening and there was morning. This is from pages 40 and 41 of God According to God by Gerald Schroeder. So if you want to try to salvage this idea, if you like this relativistic view, Gerald Schroeder gives you a way to do that. He says evening and morning is more about order and decay, order and disorder. Uh, that's how he reads evening and morning. That allows him to think of these days as conceptually being longer than 24-hour periods of time. So this is how he gets around that language in Genesis 1 that seems to point us uh, towards a more literal 24-hour day. All right, <clears throat> that's enough on day age and various views of day age. Now I want to close with Dr. Francis Collins, like I said, is the former head of the NIH. He just, as of the recording of this uh, class, stepped down. He retired. He was the former leader of the Human Genome Project. He has a very impressive resume as a scientist. I mean, he's just as credentialed as it gets. And he's also a devout Christian and has thought a lot about relating scripture and science together. And he wrote a book called The Language of God, A Scientist Presents Evidence for Belief. So if you come from a perspective where you have studied a lot of biology or studied biochemistry and you believe you have a commitment to evolution as, a, uh, as, a, as part of your worldview, I highly recommend Francis Collins. I highly recommend The Language of God. I think you'll enjoy it and I uh, think you'll appreciate a lot of what he says. His view on Genesis 1, just in brief, is that we should read it non-literally. Uh, he doesn't get into the nuts and bolts of how exactly that plays out. He will basically just accept the scientific viewpoint of everything. He'll accept the Big Bang. He'll accept abiogenesis. Uh, he'll accept evolution. Well, he won't accept abiogenesis. I think that's a misphrasing. What he'll say is God guided all these things. He'll say God was behind the Big Bang. He'll say God was behind the, the creation of life. He'll say God guided evolution. Uh, it wasn't just happenstance, but that we can observe things in the evolutionary record that he believes are true. He believes that the evolutionary record is essentially true, that that theory, he has a commitment to that theory. 
So when he approaches the text of Genesis 1, he's not even going to try to take it literally. He's going to say, we have to read this non-literally. And here's a couple quotes from the language of God that I wanted to share that I think illustrate uh, his perspective on this. It says, Genesis 2 then begins with a description of God resting on the seventh day. After this appears a second description of the creation of humans, this time explicitly referring to Adam. The second creation description is not entirely compatible with the first. In Genesis 1, vegetation appears three days before humans were created, whereas in Genesis 2, it seems that God creates Adam from the dust of the earth before any shrub or plant had yet appeared. That's page 150. On the next page, he asks, If a literal description was intended, why then are there two stories that do not entirely mesh with each other? So Francis Collins is pointing to the text and he's saying it's not entirely trustworthy. It's not, it's not entirely, it doesn't entirely fit together perfectly. And because it doesn't fit together perfectly, we don't have a burden to read it literally. That's what he's saying. I'm uncomfortable with that. I don't know if you're uncomfortable with that. You may be perfectly fine with that perspective. But that perspective makes me a little bit uncomfortable because I'd like to be able to look at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, which I believe were written by the same person, Moses, with the Spirit of God, using the same vocabulary, and I'd like to be able to say we can reconcile Genesis 1 with Genesis 2. And I think there are many ways to do that. We're not going to get into that in this class, but there are plenty of resources that will help you understand how you can fit Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 together in a logically and scripturally coherent way. I don't like Francis Collins pointing at these two records and taking what is essentially a liberal, a very common liberal scholarship view on this, that there were two different writers, two different perspectives, and therefore we can chisel away at the integrity of the Bible and just say, we can read it non-literally, this gives us free reign to do that. That's Francis Collins' perspective and I disagree with it. So here, here are my takes on that. The problems I have with Collins' non-literal view is it doesn't attempt to make sense of the text in context. He just goes to the text, points at it, and says, this doesn't make sense. And it gives me free reign to do what I want to do. In fact, it uses supposed deficiencies to make a case that we should not take Genesis literally. Here's the other problem with it. The other problem with it is atheists love to attack any non-literal perspective of Genesis 1. And they love to attack this particular one because it attacks the integrity of the text itself. So atheists love to look at Francis Collins' perspective and they say, look, Jews and Christians, you can just pick and choose what you want to believe. You can go to Genesis 1 and 2 and you can say, I don't have to believe this. I can just say this is, this is other stuff for another day, another person, not for me. I think we have to come up with a better way of looking at things and so... We can reconcile Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. I think we can come up with a better apologetic uh, that addresses the concerns of atheists. So in this session, we've considered three additional views on Genesis chapter 1. We've looked at day-age, several different formulations of day-age, and then modified day-age as well. Now, each of them interacts to some degree with the text of Genesis 1. But again, from my perspective... They're mostly motivated by the scientific evidence. They start with the science and then they move to the text. And that's why I lumped these three views together in this session, because I think that they take a similar approach at the end of the day. When we come back to this, in our next session, we're going to look at three more Old Earth views that I believe primarily look to the text and then secondarily consider the scientific record.
So we'll look forward to that as we continue looking at science and scripture. Well, that brings this session to an end. What did you think? Come on over to restitudio.org and find episode 462, part four of Scripture and Science, and leave your feedback there. We'd love to hear your thoughts. And as I mentioned in previous episodes, I am recording with Will follow-up discussions on all of these episodes. And you may hear some of your points raised as questions and put to Will in those episodes. Now, those are not coming out on the podcast, just on the YouTube channel, and they're not edited. So if you want to take a look at any of those, you're going to have to find Restitutio on YouTube or, of course, in the show notes for this episode. I've got a link to a playlist of all the follow-ups, and you just find the one that corresponds to this. This is uh, part four of the class, so find the follow-up that goes with part four, and you'll be able to go a little deeper and hear my own critiques and questions, uh, because I think we all have questions about the science, don't we? And Will's gracious enough to give me his best stab at answering my questions, which hopefully some of my questions are also your questions. Speaking of which, Mark wrote in saying, as for the episode, certainly informative to hear some different perspectives. I don't really hold too strongly to one particular view, although I do think the universe being created old makes a lot of sense. It seems Will's whole counter-argument revolves around the assumption that holders of this view assume it to be a test or deception. I think that is not necessarily the case at all. Rather, the universe looking old is just a logical result of how God chose to create the universe. For example, when he created the plants and trees, they might have looked to be hundreds of years old, even though they, even though we know it really was only a day, assuming a literal day for the argument. That's not necessarily a test or a deception. It's just that the result of a large tree being created in a day Is it looking older than it is? Same thing for the oceans, mountains, starry sky, etc. I'd be interested in hearing more counter-arguments that don't presuppose God testing or deceiving us. In any case, thanks a lot, Sean and Will, for all the effort and quality content. Well, Mark, I did uh, put this question to Will in our last follow-up, so I'll have you go over there to see his thoughts on it. Uh, But what I really do appreciate about Will's approach here is that he's going to give us all the options. And uh, although I, like many of you, would rather, I think, just skip to the end and have Will tell us his infallible and unquestioning opinion on everything, spoiler alert, he doesn't have one. And he's, he's trying to figure things out, too. Although I would certainly love certainty and conviction and we can be bold about truth this is really not one of those kind of subjects that's just so clearly spelled out that there's no room for debate here and besides which only if you have all the options on the table can you make an informed decision whatever it happens to be maybe in the end after listening to this episode about old earth theories and then our next episode as well you still say, you know what, I'm going to stick with young earth creationism. Will's whole point is, that's okay if you're young earth. That's okay if you're older. That's okay if you're going to go with the John Walton temple theory. What really matters is the gospel. What really matters is your posture towards scripture. Like, Do you recognize it as inspired and authoritative, as opposed to just people's general musings that are guidelines, but can easily be ignored at any particular moment. So 
I think when it comes to the big questions, gospel is always going to be first. You can be saved and not believe in the authority of Scripture, obviously, but gospel's first. And then after you believe in the gospel that Jesus died for your sins, that God raised him from the dead, that he's coming back to establish the kingdom, after you believe in that three-pronged gospel, uh, the, the question really comes down to what sort of book is the Bible, or really collection of books is the Bible, and do you recognize God's authority in it? Or do you think it's just people's opinions, in which case it can easily be disregarded? That is a much more important question than fo- focusing on the science. Uh, I think the science is interesting, but I don't think it's important in any kind of essential to salvation sense. So that's my perspective on it. Mark also left an audio message, which, which you can do at restitutio.org, or actually you could probably also do it on your phone. I, I think I have a link to SpeakPipe, which is the service that offers the audio recording messages in the show notes for each episode. But anyhow, Mark said the following. Hi, Sean and Will. Thanks a lot for the new series on the age of the universe, which I'm really enjoying this far. Also got an unrelated question for you, Sean, which I hope you can address. I know you're into patristics and the history of the Bible as well. And I recently found out that there's a bunch of church fathers, like Origen, claiming Matthew to have been written in either Aramaic or Hebrew originally, whereas I haven't really been able to find any early source claiming to have been written in Greek, like we really all assume today. So I was just really interested in hearing your take on it. Do you think there might actually be some surviving Aramaic copy out there, which might turn up someday? I think that would be really cool to see. Who knows? Anyway, thanks a lot for all you do. And wish you all the best. Bye-bye. Well, Mark, it's great to hear your voice. And I'm, I'm guessing you're not from Alabama. Uh, just, just a wild guess there. Anyhow, you asked about the Hebrew Gospel of Matthew, which is a fascinating topic that, like some of the science stuff, doesn't have a definitive conclusion to it as far as what is extant in the museums around the world today. But let me just tell you what I do know about the Hebrew Gospel of Matthew. First of all, the church history quotes. I wouldn't even start with Origen. I think he's a little later. I would start with Papias. Papias is just a superstar when it comes to early information about the Gospels and the Apostles, and I highly recommend Papias, although the person who preserved Papias' sayings had a very low opinion of Papias. That's uh, the historian named Eusebius. Uh, I think Papias had the kingdom exactly right, and he also had direct access to people that knew the apostles, which is fascinating, because he's writing about the year 130 in Hierapolis, which is a major city that people travel through all the time, and he's asking lots of questions of Christians that pass through. Anyhow, he writes, So then Matthew wrote the oracles in the Hebrew language, and everyone interpreted them as he was able. So that's our first reference to Hebrew Matthew is from around the year 130. Irenaeus wrote about 170, and he said, Matthew also issued a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect, while Peter and Paul were preaching in Rome, laying the foundation of the church. After their departure, Mark, the disciple interpreter of Peter, did also hand down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. Luke, also a companion of Paul, recorded in a book the gospel preached by him. Afterwards, John, the disciple of the Lord, who also had leaned upon his breast, did himself publish a gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia. And so that's Irenaeus, who is a little bit of a later source, but certainly a trustworthy 
reporter of what the church believed at that time. And this would be about 100 years after the Gospels were written, but still incredibly early by historical standards. Then, of course, the origin quote that Mark mentioned, where Origen says, Among the four Gospels, which are the only disputable ones in the Church of God under heaven, I have learned my, by tradition that the first was written by Matthew, who was once a tax collector, but afterwards an apostle of Jesus Christ. And it was prepared for the converts from Judaism and published in the Hebrew language. And so Origen flourished in the 3rd century. He died about 253. So this is moving on in time. And then finally, Eusebius, who writes in the 4th century, says... For Matthew, who had at first preached to the Hebrews when he was about to go to other peoples, committed his gospel to writing in his native tongue, and thus compensated those whom he was obliged to leave for the loss of his presence. So those are the earliest quotes we have about it. It seems like Christians generally believed that there was originally a Hebrew version of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, to this day, to my knowledge at least, no one has uncovered such a document. Uh, And there are lots of manuscript copies of the Gospel of Matthew from the Middle Ages, and there's even some earlier stuff, but it's all in Greek. And that kind of makes sense because the Greek stuff was more accessible and more copied. But who knows? Maybe someday someone will find a jar in the Judean desert or in Egypt, two places where it doesn't rain very much, and we'll find a Hebrew version of the Gospel of Matthew, and I think that would be totally awesome. It really would. But uh, as far as the other Gospels, from what we know, all written in Greek originally. I know there are some people that theorize Aramaic as the original language of the Gospels, but that would not make any sense if you're trying to reach people outside of Israel. And we know that Mark was really translating for Peter in Rome. And in Rome, as we know from Paul's epistle, which is also written in Greek, the dialect of the people, the common person on the street was Greek. Even though the city was a Latin-speaking, had a Latin-speaking government, uh, your average person did speak Greek in the city at that time. And we know that Luke uh, is writing for Theophilus and other people who are educated and looking to spread the message outside to Gentiles, once again, that would make sense to put it in Greek. As an analogy, take my own native country, going back a few generations of Ireland, and my own name, which is Sean, spelled S-E-A-N, which doesn't make any sense in English, by the way. Uh, there's no way to make that make the sound Sean from S-E-A-N in English. That's how you know it's an ethnic name. Well, my name is Gaelic, and as a result, let's imagine that a couple of generations ago, some ancestor of mine wrote a book that they really wanted, an evangelistic book that they really wanted to get out into the world. And uh, so would that person who was fluent in Gaelic write that book in just Gaelic, or would he write it also in English? Right? Would he would he want <laughs> if you're looking to reach people throughout the world, not that many people speak Gaelic. Newsflash. So uh, so it was in the first century. The whole world speaks Greek around the Mediterranean. And if you want to reach the world, you want to reach people outside of Israel with this message, this good news, you're going to write it in Greek. So it makes sense that the New Testament is written in Greek. 
However, there is this exception of Matthew, because, like, what about the Israelite people? What about the Jews? Don't you want to reach them, too? So it makes sense that there would also be something in Hebrew, although to this day we still don't have an actual copy of it. But good good question, Mark. I appreciate the thought. It's an area that I'm interested in, but at this point I don't have any further leads on. I know there have been some medieval manuscripts discovered, the Shem Tov manuscript, but from what I can tell, that's a very late uh, medieval translation as opposed to an original. Well, thanks for the comment. So uh, I'm going to just land the plane there and we'd love to hear more of your comments and thoughts on this subject because it is certainly something that is important and it is something that is interesting and worth further investigation. Well, that's it for me today. Thanks everyone for tuning in. We'll see you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.